Hello and welcome to the Feminist Law Podcast. I'm your co-host, Courtney Jones, a recent law graduate and incoming postgraduate student in law. And I'm your co-host, Clara Tokul, a recent law graduate and incoming trainee solicitor. We're both co-founders of the Feminist Law Project and passionate about the intersections of law and feminism. Today on the podcast, we're continuing our conversation with Dr. Emma Milne. It, it sounds to me like it's essentially like criminalizing any deviation from what the patriarchal society would view as the ideal mother. Um, yeah, yeah and that's and that that's absolutely horrendous. And I mean, you did you mentioned so you mentioned England and Wales, and this kind of leads nicely into my into my next question because abortion is still criminalized in some circumstances in England and Wales, which a lot of people don't know. I mean, I myself wasn't aware. I thought, you know, I thought abortion was just legal and that's how it was. Um, But actually it turns out that the legal abortion is very narrow in England and Wales. Um, So you suggest that criminal law in that system is archaic. So um, how could, how could that be replaced? So what, what are the laws that need to be repealed or modified or added to modernize the, the legal abortion system in England and Wales. Yeah, it's one of the um, the kind of ironies actually of uh, the difference between England and Wales and and the US is, and again, obviously the US is not one jurisdiction; it's lots of different states. But yeah, I'm pretty confident. Oh, somebody can email me and tell me I'm wrong about this, but I'm pretty confident that in no state is the woman ever able to be criminalized for an illegal abortion in the US. Um, And actually a couple of states, so there was was one um, case in particular, and I can't remember which state this was in now, but um, the woman was accused of feticide and convicted of feticide, and her defense team managed to successfully appeal on the basis that it wasn't feticide, it was an illegal abortion. And that that state doesn't criminalize women who commit have illegal abortions. They criminalize the abortion providers who do, who perform the abortion, but not the woman herself. Whereas in England, where we don't have we well we theoretically don't have fetal homicide laws, that woman would be committing a crime under Section fifty eight of the Offences Against the Person Act eighteen sixty one. So it's it's just it's this very bizarre situation where in England we have access to abortion, but it's not legal. But in the US. It's not illegal for women to perform their own abortions, but actually in many states, women just cannot access abortion because it is illegal for medical providers. So bizarre how the different systems still manage to screw women one way or another. Um, In England and Wales, so we've got this 1861 Offence Against Person Act, Section 58. That makes abortion illegal at any point in gestation. So uh, literally from the point of implantation through to uh, natural labor if she takes steps to end her pregnancy at any point she's committing a crime and she could be imprisoned for up to uh, life we also have the criminal offense of uh, child destruction which is under the uh, 1929 infant life preservation act which i mean this act has got a an interesting little history to it. The the actual reason why this piece of legislation came into existence was because the uh, lawyers and medical people and parliament, of course, who were all men, right, in 1929, they were they were adamant and, and really believed that women were getting away with murder because they were waiting until they went into spontaneous labour. So they weren't procuring a miscarriage. Uh, and then they were killing the baby while it was still being delivered 
So they must have something in their mind of like women who are literally in labor reaching down between their legs and like killing an infant. I have found no evidence that there is a single case of that ever happening. So this just feels like it's something that the parliament are like, oh my God, this is awful. We have to fill this gap in the law because women could do this if they realize. Yeah, it's, it's one of those fictions. But that's why the Infant Life Preservation Act came in. So it was a piece of legislation that was actually designed to um, allow a crime to be committed if a baby was killed in the process of labor. It wasn't written as a fetal protection law, right? But the way it was written, and this is the problem when you draft these laws so badly, is it can now be interpreted as if a woman or a man, so it, yes, it could be a third party as, a, as well as the pregnant woman herself, if she does something um, with the intention of causing the death of a child capable of being born alive. So, you know, you're talking about the viability point. Um, then she's committed this criminal offence. And again, she could be imprisoned for up to life for that crime. So we have these incredibly old pieces of legislation. Um, now, as I've already said, abortion is accessible here in, in England and Wales and across the UK. And that's because we've got what's called the Abortion Act of 1967. And this provides essentially a legal defence for somebody who's performing a woman's abortion. So, and this is really crucial, it's about giving the medical professionals a basis under which they can legally perform abortion. So they would also be uh, committing a crime under Section 58 of the Offences Against the Person Act. Uh, but if they can demonstrate for the various reasons listed under the Act, that um, the abortion is justifiable legally, they don't commit a crime. However, the Abortion Act doesn't apply to women themselves. So if women self-abort, regardless of the gestation, so she could literally be, you know, four weeks pregnant, she is committing a crime and she could be imprisoned for that. So that's really interesting. I'm, I'm curious now because it sounds to me like abortion is actually a crime in England and Wales, but the Abortion Act provides a legal defense for doctors who would perform this abortion. So what does that mean then for, hypothetically, a doctor prescribing abortion medication? So as long as uh, the requirements of the Act are that two doctors agree in good faith that uh, the abortion can go ahead and there, there's essentially it's four grounds. One is um, the pregnancy is under 24 gestational weeks and uh, continuing the pregnancy would be worse for the woman's uh, health or for the health of her other children and her family than if the abortion took place. The second is if she's in kind of a life, a, a grave life situation. So if, you know, if she's um, bleeding to death and they need to remove her uterus, they would be legally justified under that another is um if so maybe she's not about to die but there is a, a grave health situation um then they they could justify it under that and, and neither of those have time limits on them and then the final one is due to the the health of the fetus itself so doctors as long as they've kind of got the sign off of of two doctors um, that would give them the legal defence. And what generally happens for early medical abortions, which can be done through telemedicine, so the women don't necessarily end up going into clinics to be physically examined, um, 
she also probably will never speak to a doctor unless she's got um, underlying health conditions that means she needs uh, physician care. She'd probably speak to a nurse, a midwife, um, and will give the details. And then those details will be recorded. A doctor will re or two doctors will review them and they will decide whether legally they can give the abortion. If the answer is yes, the medication will be um, shipped out to her and she can take it at home. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that because it, it sounds like the, the situation regarding abortion is actually a lot more complicated than even I initially thought it was. Um, oh, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's it's ridiculous for a number of reasons because you don't you you just don't need unless it's unless the woman has underlying health conditions or it's a a later abortion for one reason or another. You don't need a doctor involved in that. Um, and we have this we have bizarre situations where. Uh, midwives on one day they'll be working for the National Health Service and they'll be performing um, uh, vagina aspirations for women who have uh, miscarried but but the remains of the the miscarriage have not left her body so they'll be doing that and they're licensed to do that and it's okay for them to do that and it's considered safe for them to do that but then the next day they'll be working in an abortion clinic and a woman will need a surgical abortion which is literally the same procedure but because of the regulations of the abortion act she's not legally allowed to perform that procedure on a woman needing an abortion but she is legally allowed to perform it on a woman needing who has had a miscarriage and it's it's purely because of the criminal law and this this archaic piece of legislation so it has implications for the ability to provide um best care for women it's got implications for medical professionals because you can imagine if if you're thinking about which area of medicine if you're a doctor but equally if you're a nurse or a midwife which area do you want to go into and you're aware that if you want to provide this essential service for women's health care there's all this legal tape and if you get it wrong you could be breaking the law and you could face up to life in prison that's probably going to make you think whether or not that's really the area you want to go in. So it's got a real cooling effect on the ability to attract good, you know, staff who who are committed to women's health care, um, particularly because they also get absolute garbage from anti-abortion activists. Right. So it just it's again, it's not to the level in the US, but it's still it's really not good for them. And the, you know, the final really important thing is it stops the development of healthcare. So telemedical abortion is a really clear example. Telemed could have been introduced into uh, England and Wales far, far sooner than it was. And it was being used in other countries. But because of the criminal law and the fact that uh, the way in which the criminal law dictates uh, whether or not an abortion is legal or illegal, meant that they couldn't introduce it until the government changed the law, which is uh, it only it came in very quickly because of COVID and it only came in because the government uh, had to put an emergency change to law in. So we're, we're in a situation where women do not get the best healthcare, not because professionals aren't dedicated to deliver it, but because their hands are so heavily tied by the criminal law. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Like I was not aware of this like as a feminist I was completely unaware of this legal situation in England and Wales so I'm, I'm finding this very interesting um and you know we've just talked about the legality of abortion in England and Wales which also leads very nicely into the next question because in your article you mentioned that England and Wales is actually at risk of losing its right to legal abortion so could you maybe expand on 
why this is and what the risks and likelihood of that happening actually is? Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's probably worth saying that compared to the US, we're in a much better place. Um, and hopefully, hopefully this never happens. Hopefully this is just something that in my darkest moments, I go, oh, it's all awful. And we never, ever get to a point where it might. Um, although, you know, no, I think lots of people never thought America would lose Roe v. Wade, right? And, and look what's happened. Um, the key thing for me is, so we have these these really old pieces of legislation and they only ever get pulled out to be used against women when the uh, fetus or the, the pregnancy uh, has reached kind of past that point of viability. And I, this, this viability question, it's, uh, I mean, if you talk to any medical professional who's in the area, they'll tell you viability is nothing but a legal and a social construction. It doesn't really exist in the medical world in the way that it does in the minds of everybody outside of the medical world. But essentially women who are over 24 weeks of pregnancy, they're the ones who have been criminalized. And as I was saying earlier, these are the women who are in crisis, right? They're not doing this because they're really bored one day. They're doing it because of they just, they feel like they have absolutely no other options for one reason or another. Um, and when you look at these cases, which is what I have done in the research, so I've looked at the court transcripts of when they're being convicted of these crimes, what's actually being said about them and what's being said about the law that's being used. And what comes across really, really clearly is that they are not seeing what these women have done as a, an abortion that's just too late, right? It's, it's an abortion that's been done not by a medical professional, but by themselves. And also it's past 24 weeks. So um, your justification for abortion is is no longer or is is, is trickier and, and and there are limits there. Instead, all the discussion is about how she's killed a baby effectively. Like nobody quite so blatantly says it like that, but there are discussions about how her behavior is similar to if she'd committed a homicide offense and her child could have survived. So the clear thrust of these cases is not this is an abortion that's illegal. It's you have killed your child. And my real concern is these really old, badly drafted pieces of legislation are now being used as proxies for fetal homicide laws. So whereas in the US, there were fetal homicide laws very clearly written in statute and can quite easily be used by prosecutors. It's not so easy over here because we do still have that born alive rule that I was talking about right at the beginning. Um, and the the, the consequence and the key aspect of that then is they kind of have to slip in uh, to the criminal offence that's available. In this case, it's procuring a miscarriage. But what's really clear is it's not procuring a miscarriage they're bothered about. It's the killing of a fetus. It's feticide, essentially. So my real concern is it's already happening here in England and Wales. It's just happening really quietly and really unofficially. Uh, which I've got massive problems with, as, as many other people do, because if you're if we're going to decide as a society we should protect fetuses, then Parliament needs to actively do that itself. We shouldn't. It, that's not for the the prosecutors to be doing. It's not for the courts to be doing. Um, it also, I'm concerned that we're going to end up with a case where, because although women are criminal are criminalized for these cases and they are imprisoned for these cases they don't go to prison for that long I mean obviously 
any prison sentence is too long, in my opinion, for these cases. But they have they receive far lighter prison sentences than, for example, a woman convicted of murdering her newborn babies, which is after the born alive rule has happened. And what has become quite clear around recent cases is lots of people like the courts don't see what these women have done to be illegal abortions. They see what these women have done to be killing a baby. It's just a baby that hasn't been born yet. So that public narrative around this woman is killing a baby is already there. It's not as if it doesn't exist and it's potentially going to come into fruition. Um, in which case, you know, the ground is the ground is set here. And I'm concerned we're going to end up with a case that a woman doesn't perhaps get a particularly lengthy prison sentence for doing this. The uproar is, but she's killed a baby. And if she'd waited and she'd killed an older infant, she'd have got 15 years in prison, for example. Um, we need to do something to make this with this worse and this harder. And then you very quickly, actually, someone in Parliament stands up and goes, absolutely, we should put fetal homicide laws in place like they do in the US. And then we're in the same place the US has started in, right, where you've now got fetal homicide laws that are officially on the books. We as a society through Parliament have decided it's really important we protect fetal life, in which case you've got the same question that we were talking about in the US a while ago, which is, well, if it's illegal for a if it's, if it's illegal for someone else to kill a fetus, why is or if it's illegal for a woman to kill her own fetus when it's at 38 weeks gestation, why is it not illegal at 28 weeks or 18 weeks or eight weeks? And it, that's my concern is, is when we start thinking about the fetus as a potential victim of any crime, you just, you open the door to these very, very easy narratives. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's not a very long jump from a fetal homicide law to an anti-abortion law, for sure. No, as the US shows, right? Absolutely. So earlier you mentioned that we would discuss some of the harms and risks caused by fetal protection laws. I'm wondering if you could maybe give our listeners an overview of this. The key concern I've got about criminalizing women for conduct while they're pregnant that may or may not have an impact upon the health and well-being of the fetus is the, the consequence of criminalizing women. So in the United States, the women who have been criminalized most readily you know, hardest uh, are the most vulnerable of women. They are the women with the fewest resources. They are women who are the most structurally disadvantaged. So specifically, we're talking about women from ethnic minorities. We're talking about poor women. Um, and certainly when fetal homicides first started to be uh, created and then being be used against pregnant women, we really saw the, the initial group who was being targeted by these laws was black women who were using crack cocaine. Now, the, uh, the use of the laws against this group of women is all part of the wider um, uh, discriminatory practice of different outcomes for people who used crack cocaine versus people who, who, did, who were using um, cocaine that wasn't crack. Um, so those who use crack are much more likely to be African Americans, black people, whereas those who uh, use the other form of cocaine much more likely to be white. 
ostensibly the same drug, but very, very different outcomes in terms of how the criminal justice system was penalising those people. So uh, black women who were pregnant while they were using the cocaine, it, their, the criminalisation of them was very much tied up as part of this wider um, discriminatory practice. Nevertheless, the consequence that we see, not just with women who are using controlled substances while they're pregnant, but, but all forms of um, activity that could be considered dangerous to the fetus. The consequence is that if a woman is scared, she's going to be reported to the police. What she does is she just doesn't go to seek medical assistance, right? She, if she finds out she's pregnant and she knows the police are gonna be called because she is either using drugs at that particular moment or she has used drugs in the past, uh, those women just don't seek medical care. And one of the key things we know about what actually causes harm to fetuses is lack of medical care is one of the really, really um, dangerous things. So it's, it's much more likely that a woman is going to have a complex pregnancy uh, or rather that the complications of her pregnancy won't be diagnosed. Uh, so there are much worse outcomes for women and for babies if no medical care is received during the pregnancy. In addition to that, I mean, it's the, the impact on women's ability to talk honestly to her doctor, to her nurse, about what's going on in her life and therefore to receive the, the, the treatment and the care that she should receive, she's entitled to, um, that is in her and her unborn baby's best interest is dramatically um, limited when she feels like she can't be completely honest because she's scared those medical professionals are gonna report her. So there's a huge issue there about the role of doctors and, and nurses and healthcare in general in how they are actively reporting women and again in the US we've seen quite clearly that the women who are more likely to be reported are the women who are going to state funded institutions so it's the poorer women again the the women who are most structurally disadvantaged women from ethnic minorities who are um, more likely to to end up being reported by medical uh, community uh, by the medical uh, practitioners so it's you know it's a really desperate situation uh, and the reality is if, if a woman is, for example, addicted to um, controlled substances, the best thing for her if she finds out she's pregnant is not going to be to go cold turkey because that can be incredibly dangerous for her and the baby. But it's going to be for her to receive, you know, proper medicalized treatment. So potentially going into rehab, which you know, is, is possibly going to be something that she absolutely wants to do because just because a woman is a drug user doesn't mean that she doesn't want the best thing for her baby um, so this assumption that women who drug use are automatically bad and so should absolutely be criminalized is it's it's so prejudicial it's, it doesn't bear out in reality so these criminal justice um, interventions just don't work in any way shape or form because they stop women being able to take active decisions to help their babies and require them to effectively hide their pregnancies which is just absolutely not good for anyone there's also reports um so there's a couple of cases that we're aware of and no doubt there are more where women who were using controlled substances were threatened with prosecution and so they they sought abortions in order to to um end the pregnancy this was obviously before uh, Roe v Wade was overturned so when abortion was still 
widely accessible in every state. Um, and because they'd ended the pregnancy, they weren't then prosecuted. So going back to what's the purpose of fetal homicide laws, if, if the purpose is to protect fetuses, then if the consequence of a fetal homicide law is a woman has an abortion, so effectively kills a fetus through a legal mechanism, you're not exactly protecting fetuses, are you? Because this woman has now just ended this fetus's life in order to not be prosecuted under fetal homicide laws that are designed to protect fetuses. That there's, there's no logic to that, uh, which again, I think really says something about what are the fetal homicide laws really actually trying to do. So in addition to fetal homicide laws not actually helping to protect fetuses and their health and well-being, they have dramatic impacts on women's rights and um, women's liberty. So, you know, we've been talking throughout about the fact that there's a connection between uh, the um, creation of fetal homicide laws and the, the notion that the fetus is a, a legal person who should be protected and the ending of legal abortion. But in addition to that, there are other legal consequences. So if, for example, it is a crime for a woman to uh, take drugs while she is pregnant because she is considered to be um, giving that drug to a minor, which is a crime in a number of states. Alabama is a really good example of this, but it's not the only one. Uh, and there's a, been a couple of cases in Alabama of women being imprisoned for incredibly long periods of time because they have uh, they've had a positive um, blood test for a controlled substance and they've been pregnant and either the child or the, the baby's died one way or another. Um, so in the particular case that I'm thinking of, the, um, her, her, the cord prolapsed, so the umbilical cord prolapsed through her vagina, which obviously cut off blood circulation and, and oxygen to the, the baby. Um, they attempted to save the baby's life through an emergency C-section, but she was only about 21, 23 weeks pregnant. So it's very, very early in pregnancy in terms of whether or not the baby could survive. Um, and sadly didn't. And, and this was a wanted pregnancy, but this, this woman had also used um, meth and her blood test showed that she'd used meth. Now, using meth had absolutely no impact on the fact that her, her, the cord prolapsed. It's, that's not the cause of the death of the baby. But because she'd used meth and because the baby had died, she was considered to have, have um, uh, the criminal offence is chemical endangerment. So chemical endangerment of a child. It wasn't originally designed to be used against fetuses. It was designed to criminalise parents who uh, are having their children living in meth labs, which is obviously incredibly dangerous for children because the meth goes everywhere. So they're, it's, it's in, in every pore of their body by that point. That's what the legislation was designed to do. It wasn't designed for pregnant women. But again, it was drafted so badly. And when you start thinking about um, how do you define a fetus, how do you define a child, the um, Supreme Court of Alabama determined that a child includes a fetus, which means that any woman who takes controlled substances while she's pregnant is, is according to the law, um, chemically endangering their child. So you've then got this situation where a woman who isn't pregnant taking the controlled substance probably isn't a crime because in most places it's not a crime to take the drug it's a crime to possess the drug and it's a crime to sell the drug but it's not a crime to actually ingest the drug mostly because that's it's really hard to 
to police and control that. And yet, when she's pregnant, so as soon as she becomes pregnant, it is a crime to ingest the drug because she's now um, chemically endangering her unborn baby. So we've got situations here where the consequence of these laws is that they uh, make things illegal for women purely because they are pregnant. And that's really important because what we're looking at there is a sex-based criminalisation, and that's discrimination because we're looking at a situation where men can never, ever commit that crime. So men can't... There isn't suddenly a state where men enter into and because they've now ingested this drug, they are committing a crime. Men can ingest the drug and not commit that crime for the entirety. Obviously, they'll potentially be committing other crimes like possession, but they won't be committing the crime of like connected to the actual ingestion. Whereas women, because there's a good chunk of time where the vast majority of women can become pregnant, they, this, is a, this is something that only affects them, which is sex-based discrimination. And this is the other, the other really scary thing about these sorts of laws, is when you start regulating what women do while they're pregnant, because it's such a fundamental aspect of being a woman, you know, unless you've had your uterus removed for one reason or another, there's a chance you could get pregnant, which means that if there are laws that exist that criminalise conduct during pregnancy, there is a chance that you could be committing those. And if those laws are non-specific and they just talk about the existence of a pregnancy, then there's a chance you could be committing these crimes because you're pregnant, but you might not even know you're pregnant. So it might be the very early stages of pregnancy. And that's, I mean, A, that's a really dangerous position for women to be in, but B, the law shouldn't be treating us different simply because we have the biological ability to get pregnant. That is a very, very clear sex-based discrimination and is something we should absolutely be fighting against. So I think there are some very practical issues about um, the risk to access to abortion in general, but there's also these much more fundamental issues about our sex-based rights and how criminalising conduct during pregnancy is a threat to those sex-based rights. And most women might look at this and go, well, I would never use methamphetamines, I'd never use cocaine, and those women who do probably should be criminalised. But the problem with these laws is they are not, as I've already talked about, they're not necessarily thinking about the actual harm because the woman whose who's, um, uh, umbilical cord prolapsed, the methamphetamine wasn't the reason for that. But what if she'd been drinking alcohol instead? What if the laws then changed to alcohol, which is something that many more of us will be doing compared to methamphetamines or cocaine, for example? What if you're taking other controlled substances that aren't illegal? So, you know, certain uh, painkillers, for example, would fall under that sort of definition. There's other activity that is also considered to be bad for unborn babies, such as eating a raw steak or eating blue cheese so what if we then expand the law to think about uh, any of that sort of harm so all of a sudden it becomes illegal for a woman to have a piece of stilton while she's pregnant and I know p when I say things like this people often think that I'm you know being alarmist and it's ridiculous the law would never do that but the problem is when you start opening the doors to the idea that a fetus is a legal person who needs to be protected and the person who's most likely to commit harm against that fetus is a woman, you really do open up the possibility that actually 
all forms of women's conduct could suddenly be criminally regulated in order to ensure babies have the best possible chance of being born alive and healthy. And that is so dangerous. And it's something we need to resist now, even though it's only affecting a very small group of women. I remind everybody that small group of women tend to be the most vulnerable and structurally disadvantaged women in society. But we as a collective group need to be fighting back against this now because the risk of where this goes in the future is incredibly great. Plus, you know, we should be standing up for our sisters who may or may not have the, the financial resources and the abilities to stand up for themselves. Um, so this has been really fascinating. So I'm wondering if our listeners wanted to learn more about your research uh, around fetal protection laws um, or about this more widely or perhaps wanted to contribute to some advocacy for some better legislation where could they do this so this research this work I'm doing has a website which I'm sure you will pop somewhere so that people can follow and can go and take a look at that so there's um there's briefings on there and there's lots of interesting bits and pieces that people can see and there's also a um, sign up uh, link so you can get some updates from me about the project and about how things develop and the other place I would suggest people go is the British Pregnancy Advisory Service website, which hopefully you will also link below. Um, they, they're, you know, they're leading this, this charge of we need to get abortion out of the criminal law. Because if we get abortion out of the criminal law and we remove the proxy fetal homicide laws, it becomes a lot harder to get the actual official fetal homicide laws. And hopefully in that instance, if we remove abortion from the criminal law, hopefully we safeguard it and I can sleep easier at night. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, I will link both of those in the show notes for any listeners who might be interested in checking that out or subscribing to get updates on the campaign now. So thank you so much for, for coming on our podcast today. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. In today's Feminist News Roundup, a judge in Quebec has authorized a class action lawsuit against three doctors who have been accused of forcibly sterilizing a Tikamek woman. Also in today's News Roundup, surgeons in Oxford have successfully transplanted a woman's womb to her sister. This is the first successful womb transplant in the UK. Meanwhile, in Romania, prosecutors have compiled evidence alleging that Andrew Tate coerced women into sexual acts. Included in this evidence are text messages where it appears Andrew Tate claimed leadership of the adult content business alleged to have been a human trafficking ring. In Afghanistan, the BBC reports that the Taliban have banned women from visiting the Bandia near National Park because women had not been observing the hijab while inside. Finally, Spanish prosecutors have opened a preliminary sexual assault investigation over Luis Rubiales' kiss of World Cup player Jenny Hermoso. If you have any suggestions for this podcast, let us know directly via email at contact at feministlaw.org. Please also visit our website at feministlaw.org and follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn to keep up to date with our latest articles, podcasts, newsletters, and exciting news. The music for this podcast was sourced from pixabay.com. Thanks for listening.